everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Johannin Petrovsky-Stern back on the show, and we'll be talking about his really interesting new book, The Anti-Imperial Choice, The Making of the Ukrainian Jew. Many of the people who listen to this show are probably familiar with a fellow named Robert Zimmerman, but you know him under a different name. He is, of course, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan made a very unusual choice when he decided to follow, of all people, Woody Guthrie and become a folk singer. This was not the normal thing for a bright Jewish boy from the American upper Midwest to do. Doctor, lawyer, professor was probably more common. Why did he do this? It's a very interesting question. Uh, Johannin, in this book, takes up a similar sort of query as it relates to uh, Eastern Europe and particularly Ukraine. He's discovered a series of Jews in the Pale of Settlement who, instead of adopting the imperial culture, that is the majority culture, say Russian-speaking or German, adopted Ukrainian culture and took it as a cause of their own, and some of them became great Ukrainian poets. Sort of a tradition that Yohanan has discovered, and, and one that sheds light not only on the Russian Empire and the Jewish experience, but the Ukrainian experience as well. So this is our first foray into Ukrainian history, and I hope that it won't be our last. I should also say that this is our 100th show, and I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Uh, I think it's been successful. I've heard from a lot of you, and I've tried to take your comments about the show under advisement and even implement some of them. And please keep those comments coming. I'd also like to thank a bunch of you for becoming fans of the show on Facebook. That helps very much because I need a measure of some sort to show my bosses here at the University of Iowa that people are listening to the show. It also tracks statistics about who listens. And I know that there are literally tens of thousands of people now, I think, who listen to the show all over the world. So thank you all for tuning in, if tuning in is what you do on the internet. So without further ado, let me present the interview with Johannin Petrovsky-Stern. Hi, Johannin. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Um, it's it's wonderful. It's it's clear, uh, sunny, uh, and very chilly. That's windy great. city, no, as you know. Yes, the windy city is right. No, here in Iowa, it's about the same thing, but it's very sunny and very nice. I should tell our uh, listeners that we have Johannin Petrovsky-Stern on the show today, and I'm very happy about that. We'll be talking about his new book, The Anti-Imperial Choice, The Making of the Ukrainian Jew. Uh, as I told Johannin in the pre-interview, this is my 100th show, and I'm very pleased about that. And I wanted to have a special guest on, somebody who I knew would do a great job, and so I picked Johannin. And uh, so, uh, Johannin, I'm very very pleased that you're on the show. Maybe you could begin uh, the show by uh, telling us a, a little bit about yourself and how you came to write the book. Uh, first, uh, Marshall, uh, let me uh, congratulate you um, on uh, your 100th show. Um, I you. am um, I'm a fan of yours, and I uh, listen to many interviews. Not to all of them, I'm guilty, I know, but uh, at least to uh, some of the best ones. And out of this 100, I believe I've heard about 60, and they are <laughs> That's amazing. they are really very helpful, and uh, they. Um, Open my eyes to the questions I've never asked oh, and to the themes you. I've never thought about. Uh, so um, I, I thank you for that, and I think that you are doing really a great job. And thank you for um, uh, for picking me up. Uh, I, I'm privileged and honored to be with you on your hundredth show. Absolutely, my pleasure. Now, as far as as my life story is concerned. You know, um, when uh, people uh, write books, uh, when he or she writes a new book, uh, and they are asked, how did you come uh, to write this book? Uh, people usually invent 
the life stories, so the, the life stories will match exactly uh, the uh, topic of the book. Uh, the problem with, is, is that uh, if a person writes, if the same person writes another book, there will be a different life story. <laughs> so let me let me let me use this trick and and tell you that um, I believe um, I can invent um, another uh, life story um, of mine that would uh, fit well in uh, the description of the anti anti imperial choice. Now. Um, as you know, um, I am uh, born in uh, Kiev, uh, in the Soviet Union, um, uh, in the times immemorial, in the previous millennium, in the previous <laughs> century. Um, and uh, I cannot say that I was either a Ukrainian or a Jew. Um, it would be uh, wrong to call me a Ukrainian Jew. Um, why so? Because um, I was born into a very much assimilated Russian-speaking family uh, with some uh, very mild um, uh, Jewish concerns, and uh, certainly with no interests, uh, with no interest in 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 things Jewish. Um, I knew that um, you know I go to um, a school in Ukraine. Uh, I heard people around sometimes speaking the Ukrainian language, but it never occurred. Uh, that uh, I would discover the Ukrainian culture. It came very late to me in my life that I realized that uh, Ukrainian culture is important, it's vibrant, it's interesting, and it is suffering from a an enforced um, state-orchestrated Russification. Mm -hmm. And this discovery is exactly what opened my eyes uh, toward Ukrainian culture and made me think big about where was I at that particular time? Mm -hmm. And uh, how how did uh, you get from there? You sort of discovered there is a Ukrainian culture to writing a book about uh, people uh, who were born into the Jewish faith and then came to adopt Ukraine as uh, their own. I guess the right way to put it is cause. Uh, let me let me tell you this. Um, I believe. We know from um, history that Jews who live in Europe at the end of the 19th, early 20th century usually integrate the majority, uh, the upper class, uh, the uh, imperial culture, mm -hmm. uh, be it French, German, Russian. Um, Kafka lives in Prague and dreams of his readers in Berlin and writes in the German language. Vasily Grossman uh, is born in Berdichev, um, but he dreams of his Russian readers and becomes the Russian language writer. Mm -hmm. um, you do not have uh, that many Jews who live together with Kafka, uh, next to Kafka, in Prague, and integrate, let's say, Czech culture, mm -hmm. or uh, Jews who are there in Ukraine and who integrate the Ukrainian culture. Why mm -hmm. so? Because um, at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, uh, the stateless cultures are considered uh, backward, peasant-based, third rank, uh, colonial, not interesting, um, and uh, quite usually uh, anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. What do you do with that? Mm -hmm. Why would you want to integrate this kind of culture? Mm -hmm. That's exactly the question, one of the questions that I'm asking in the book. And um, oh, then there is a story uh, to 
how I came to write this book. Um, one of my um, colleagues uh, asked me to write a uh, an essay on uh, a Jewish writer poet who writes in the Ukrainian language today. And I wrote a an article about Moisei Fishbane, uh, to who to whom I uh, devoted the last chapter in my book, mm-hmm. who is an extraordinary Ukrainian poet. He lives today in Kiev, um, and uh, I wrote an essay about him, and realized that I am dealing with somebody who represents uh, the pinnacle of an iceberg. Mm-hmm. I'm dealing with a person who certainly represents some sort of a tradition or some sort of, of a trend within the Ukrainian culture that we know nothing about. Mm-hmm. How come that this uh, person, Musefish Bain, who is born in Chernovitz, in Chernivtsi, uh, to a Yiddish and Russian-speaking family, becomes one of the major Ukrainian poets of the late 20th, early 21st century. And once I asked myself this question, I decided to look back and uh, I try to find out whether there are other people who did the same. Mm-hmm. And I discovered not one, not two, not three, but many of uh, the uh, uh, intellectuals, literati, writers, poets, um, uh, literary critics, uh, musicians, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, who decided to integrate the Ukrainian culture. Mm-hmm. And this is why the book is called The Anti-Imperial Choice, because they don't integrate into the Russian culture, or in the case of Kafka, the German culture. They integrate into a minority culture, and, and what is more, a minority culture that was uh, oppressed at the end of the 19th century, and actually was, has been oppressed since the uh, liberation of Ukraine in, in 91. So well, why don't we begin actually talking about uh, one of these very interesting characters, the very first one you talk about, um, a certain Kerner who is uh, who becomes Kinerenko. Go ahead. Right. Uh, right. Um, the case of uh, Grigory Kerner um, is uh, is a very interesting case. Uh, when I came across um, uh, this case, I realized I'm dealing with the beginning of the tradition uh, that I'm trying to reconstruct or discover or invent, uh, choose uh, <laughs> any of these verbs. Um, um, why is it so important to talk about him? He is not uh, a uh, writer, poet uh, in the Ukrainian language of primary importance. He is not even the second rank uh, uh, writer, poet. But uh, he is a very interesting case. Um, he is born in uh, Gulaipole to a uh, very affluent uh, Jewish family, really the upper class bourgeoisie. Uh, he goes to study uh, agriculture and uh, engineering in Munich. And when he comes back, he says, well, I don't want to be uh, a bourgeois Grigory Kerner. I would like to be a Ukrainian poet Grisko Kernerenko. <laughs> and, you know, this is, this is extraordinary. Why, yeah. why would you like to do, why would you want to do that? Um, now, not only he does that, um, we have to, uh, we need to understand the context in, in which he is emerging as Grisko Kernerenko. And the context is certainly not favorable to anything no. uh, Ukrainian. No, not at all. Uh, you know, um, at that particular time, um, uh, the, um, 
leading uh, Ukrainian philanthropist who uh, uh, sponsors the revival of Ukrainian culture um, in the um, early years of the 20th century, Yevhen Chikalenko says that there were seven Ukrainian-speaking families in Kiev, <laughs> in what today is the capital of Ukraine. Um, and, and we are talking about um, Kernerenko discovering himself as Hrytsko Kernerenko mm-hmm. uh, 30 years before that time, mm-hmm. so in the, in, the, um, in the 1870s, 1880s. Mm-hmm. Um, at that particular time, uh, the Ukrainian language, um, as we know, is banished from all spheres of public life after the Ans decree and Valuyev decree. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ukrainian uh, teachers cannot teach um, uh, in the Ukrainian language at, uh, um, at the elementary schools. Um, uh, Ukrainian uh, Orthodox Christians cannot hear the sermons uh, by the priests in the Ukrainian language, mm-hmm. because language is, is forbidden um, uh, to be used um, even in the sermons, uh, let alone uh, in the um, publications, um, journals, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. It is in this context that Kernerenko is saying, I would like to become the Ukrainian poet. Mm-hmm. He um, uh, starts writing Ukrainian poetry and Ukrainian prose narrative. Uh, the Ukrainian writers and poets discover him. Um, he writes uh, a letter presenting himself to Ivan Franco, who is seen today as one of the father founders of modern Ukrainian literature. Franco says, wow, we have here uh, um, a person who wants to be one of us. Uh, Franco at that time is not in uh, uh, the Ukrainian proper. He is in uh, the um, Ukrainian territory, which is under Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time, um, uh, in, in Galicia, mm-hmm. uh, where he uh, creates um, a number of venues for the development of uh, Ukrainian culture, including his major journal, in which he starts publishing uh, the poetry, uh, prose narrative, and the translations of Hrytsko uh, Krenrenko. Mm-hmm. So, um, now, Kornenko is not only the person who wants to um, create his uh, Ukrainian self, he is also very critical about what Ukraine is um, um, at that particular time. He um, understands that he is dealing with a culture that has uh, anti-Jewish bias. He is dealing with people who are not really eager to embrace him, but he wants to be a Ukrainian poet. What do you do with that? And he writes... uh, um, uh, a very moving poetry um, in which he uses uh, the patterns, uh, the style, the imagery, and metaphors of Heinrich Heine, another poet of dual identity, German-Jewish in this, in this case, um, in order to convey his feelings um, and his understanding of his own uh, Kernerenko's encounter with uh, the contemporary Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And he writes, Proshai Ukraina moya, Тебе я кинуть мушу, хоча до тебе я віддав життя і волю і душу, але я пасенок тобі. На жаль, це добре знаю. І проміж других дітей твоїх я не живу, страждаю. Не сила знести вже мені глумлінь тих понад міру за те, що я і твої сини не одну маємо віру. Тебе ж, Україна моя, я буду вік кохати, бо ти хоч мачуха мені, а все ж ти мені мат. Let me briefly translate uh, what, what he is uh, saying here. Fare thee well, my Ukraine. I need to leave you. Thou for you I have sacrificed my life and freedom and soul. 
but I'm your stepson, and I know this only too well. Among you other children, I live not, but I suffer. I cannot anymore tolerate the mockery of the fact that your sons and I are of different faiths. Yet you, my Ukraine, I will love forever. Always you treat me as a stepson, still you are my mom. Mm-hmm. This is a very moving uh, uh, poetry, and it's, uh, it is wonderfully uh, uh, articulated in Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Um, what amazes me in this poem is that it is certainly about his desire to be part of the Ukrainian milieu, the Ukrainian culture, mm-hmm. his desire to present himself as a Ukrainian poet, his desire to feel that Ukraine is... Uh, his mom. Mm-hmm. This is a very important metaphor that uh, comes from uh, the times of Shevchenko to uh, nowadays uh, Ukrainian poetry, mm-hmm. the image of Ukraine as the mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, he understands there are problems with his desire to integrate this culture because, uh, you know, he belongs to a different faith. He, uh, he's not becoming a Russian Orthodox uh, in order to become the Ukrainian. He still wants to be accepted as a Jew, and that creates a major problem. Uh, he discusses uh, this grappling with his dual Ukrainian-Jewish identity in this poem. Mm-hmm. That makes him, I believe, uh, very unique uh, among those who are seeking um, the integration into a different culture, in this case into uh, a colonial, stateless, Ukrainian, anti-Semitic uh, culture, or at least as a culture that is perceived as uh, this type of culture by his contemporaries, certainly by his Jewish contemporaries. Mm-hmm. But he still has a foot in both worlds, as you uh, say. Uh, he's involved in uh, the Ukrainian discovery of Shalom Aleichem, isn't he? Right. Um, that's um, another um, interesting aspect of, of uh, what he does. Uh, we might think that um, uh, my characters, uh, the people who I des- describe in the book, um, are integrating Ukrainian culture and dissolving themselves in the Ukrainian culture. This is not happening. Uh, Kernerenko, as well as Raisa Trojanker, Leonid Parvomaisky, Moisey Fishbein, and others, um, they... Um, convey their Jewish concerns in the Ukrainian language, and they um, infuse the Ukrainian poetry and prose narrative with the Jewish imagery, Jewish metaphors, uh, um, and uh, very important Jewish cultural references. Um, in uh, in this particular case, in case of Hrytsko Kernerenko, um, at a certain point, uh, he uh, becomes a medium through which uh, Ivan Franko discovers the Yiddish um, uh, the, the Yiddish literature. Uh, Franco um, asks Kernerenko in one of his letters, who is this Shalom uh, Aleichem? Uh, <laughs> right, right. The, which is a legitimate question for a Ukrainian-speaking person in 1899. Mm-hmm. Right, and Kernerenko uh, explains this is uh, the uh, best-known uh, writer in uh, the jargon, as Yiddish is called at that particular yeah. time. Um, and um, Franco says, well, if this is such an important writer, let's have him translate it. So Kernerenko translates uh, pieces from Shalom Aleichem into Ukrainian, which are then published um, in uh, Franco's journal. He does the same uh, with the uh, Russian language poet, um, uh, Simon Frug, 
who is at the time uh, perhaps uh, one of the uh, most well-known um, uh, Russian Jewish poets. Mm -hmm. He translates Krenerka translates Frug into Ukraine into the Ukrainian language, um, and uh, his translations are published uh, again in the Ukrainian uh, journals. So he is uh, a bridge between cultures, and he uh, also uh, makes uh, uh, Russian, Jewish, and uh, Yiddish. Um, culture visible uh, for the Ukrainian readers. Moreover, he is taking pieces of um, Jewish religious tradition and infusing his um, Ukrainian poetry uh, with uh, the elements of Jewish culture. He writes Ukrainian poetry about uh, Jewish messianism. Um, he writes Ukrainian poet, uh, poetry about uh, the um, events in Jewish social life. Um, he has a major poem about um, the cancellation of the um, uh, Jewish privilege uh, to sell uh, and produce alcohol. Uh, he says how important it is for the Jews not to do that anymore. Uh, nobody will call Jews uh, um, um, the people who make Russian and Ukrainian peasant drunk. Mm -hmm. uh, so he is really um, in the for at the forefront of the um, um, uh, of, of pondering the uh, experience of Jews in East Europe and the encounter with uh, the Slavic cultures, and all and all in the Ukrainian language. That's that's pretty incredible. How how is um, uh, Kinyanenko remembered today? Is he remembered by the Ukrainian literati? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was fascinated to discover that um, uh, there are scholars of um, uh, local histories um, in uh, central Ukraine that uh, rediscovered Kernerenko, uh, wrote um, articles about him. Uh, you would find uh, a major newspaper in Zaporozhye or in Dnipropetrovsk or in Poltava that have articles about um, um, Kernerenko and that celebrate his uh, uh, firm stance on uh, the issues of Ukrainian revivalism. Hmm. Uh, these people are saying, look, we live still in this uh, uh, milieu uh, which is russified, uh, which votes for Yanukovych, uh, which um, uh, looks uh, at Kremlin as uh, the redeemer and uh, so on and so forth. But here you have a Jew who, in the, uh, at the end of the 19th century, says uh, Ukrainian culture is, uh, is a very important self-contained um, phenomenon, mm -hmm. and uh, we should help it uh, to be more visible. We should, we should develop it. We should uh, integrate uh, uh, this culture, and we should certainly invest our heart and nerve and sinew into it. Mm. That's, that's fascinating. Let's, let's actually move on to uh, the next author you deal with, uh, a, a certain uh, Ivan Hulik. Um, he's, a, quite a, he's, a, he's quite a different character, but every bit is unique. Right. Uh, Kulik is, is the unique character among the unique characters. <laughs> unlike Kernerenko, uh, unlike Kernerenko, who is certainly um, um, a person um, uh, who supports uh, and who promotes Ukrainian revivalism, Kulik uh, supports and promotes uh, what people called in the mid 1920s uh, the national communism. And uh, uh, by the national communism in quick case, I mean the encounter of uh, two utopias. Uh, one, Ukrainian-centered utopia of the Slavic cultures, and another is uh, the international um, uh, proletarian revolution of uh, Bukharian's type. 
let me explain to you very briefly how Kulik came to the discovery of uh, this kind of national communism, because you know his itinerary is uh, is uh, a, a very interesting. Yeah, he uh, makes he makes his way around. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, he traveled a lot before he um, found out how to put these things together. Uh, he's born to a Yiddish and Russian-speaking family in Shpola, uh, which is in, uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, then, uh, when he's two or three years old, his family moves to Uman, uh, which, as we know, is a major uh, attraction for Hasidim, uh, for the pious Jews uh, from all over the world. Um, in Uman, his father works as, uh, uh, as a Milamed in Talmud Torah, which is uh, a teacher in uh, an elementary Jewish school. Kulik is not interested in anything Jewish. He is interested in uh, um, his encounters with uh, Ukrainian uh, village dwellers who come to the local parks uh, to play uh, Cossacks, uh, bandits, robbers, smugglers, <laughs> and he plays with them. Now, where where do they play? They play um, on the territory of the famous uh, Sofievka Park. Uh, Sofievka Park is an English-style park with cataracts, uh, grottos, um, um, woods, um, stages of uh, Greek uh, gods and goddesses, um, rotundas, and so on and so forth. This is the park uh, established um, uh, by the Count Potocki in the uh, early years of the 19th century. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful park. Um, so Kulik uh, is playing the Cossacks with his Ukrainian uh, fellows uh, out there, and from them uh, he picks his Ukrainian language. And he writes uh, a moving poetry uh, later in his life uh, about his encounter with the um, uh, rural-based Ukraine uh, in this Sofitivka park. Uh, then he discovers that his brother is arrested. His brother becomes a Marxist. He is um, uh, involved with revolutionary circles in Uman. He is taken to prison, and somebody needs to take letters from the prison to uh, the fellows of his brother who are in the um, underground. And Kulik, who is uh, seven or eight years old, uh, does exactly this. He becomes a, a mailman. A revolutionary male. <laughs> right. So this is his first encounter with. That's quite, uh, with, that's, that's uh, quite an image. With, revolutionary mailman. That is. Uh, yeah, revolutionary uh, mailman. Yeah. Exactly. Now, uh, at the same time, um, he discovers that he is very much interested in in the Ukrainian culture. Now, perhaps you know about this famous expedition by. Uh, um, uh, Shlomo Ansky to the Pale of Settlement. Uh, Shlomo Ansky is a Yiddish writer and Russian writer, and he is um, an ethnographer, um, and, and he um, organizes um, an, an expedition um, uh, to the Pale of Settlement uh, that uh, collects the artifacts of uh, uh, Jewish life, uh, Jewish uh, pictures, Jewish stories, uh, Jewish folklore, and so on and so forth. Uh, this expedition uh, took place between 1911 and 1913, and I'm telling you this because it is an important backdrop to my story. Kulik most likely knows about this expedition, or he heard that there are people who are interested in the material culture of the Jewish world. Now, he lives in the center of the Jewish world, but he's not interested in things Jewish. He goes to the nearby villages around Uman, and he 
puts on paper kolyatki, shedrivki, and other uh, genres of of the Ukrainian folklore. He uh, is interested in um, the design of Ukrainian pisanki, which is uh, this um, Easter eggs uh, mm-hmm. that are painted very beautifully uh, mm-hmm. before Easter. I, I'm sure you. You've oh yes, seen no, I've seen them. Yes, absolutely. Right. So he he is. Um, uh, he's copying the designs of this pisanki, and and uh, later he, uh, when he is about thirteen years old, he is um, uh, he is co-opted by the local Uman um, branch of the Society for the Preservation of Monuments, and he makes a, a presentation there about the Ukrainian folklore, about the material culture um, of the nearby villages, mm-hmm. uh, emphasizing uh, the importance of the study of Ukrainian folklore. So it is fascinating that uh, when Jews uh, of um, uh, his um, type of origins are interested in the material culture of the shtetl, he is interested in the material culture of the Ukrainian village. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, he certainly cannot make both ends meet um, in uh, Uman. He goes to study painting in Odessa. He cannot pay for his paint, for his, for his studies. He has no money. He decides to leave um, uh, the, old, the, the, the old world for good, and he moves to the United States. In the United States, he is cheated by his Jewish relatives, he runs away, and he becomes a minor in Pennsylvania. Uh Now, when he is in Pennsylvania, um, uh, he is looking for a milieu to to be integrated by, and and, uh, he discovers uh, Nikolai Bukharin, who is at the time um, editing uh, the uh, Novi Mir, the New World Journal, um, in uh, excuse me, newspaper, not a journal. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Bukharin, who is at that time editing uh, the uh, Novi Mir newspaper, which is a Russian socialist Marxist newspaper in New York. Kulik starts writing um, uh, journalistic articles uh, for this newspaper, and uh, his encounter with Bukharin galvanizes him because he realizes there is such a thing as the international proletarian revolution that will come to redeem the world from oppression, that w- which will come to redeem the oppressed proletarians all over the world. Um, and um, he, he is so much... Uh, galvanized by Bukharin that when they both learned about the um, uh, February Revolution uh, in um, in Russia, they leave New York and they go uh, through the United States, through Yokohama, to Vladivostok, from Vladivostok to Moscow, to be the participants of this new Russian Revolution. Bukharin stay, uh, re- remains in Moscow. Kulik, wants to, uh, Kulik uh, goes to Ukraine, and in Ukraine he is um, pointed, or I would say, he is elected by the Red Cossacks to be the first commissar of the Red Cossack unit in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Then there is another episode um, uh, in his uh, life story: the, uh, his uh, participation in the civil in the in the uh, civil war. Um, his arrest, his imprisonment, he spends uh, about a year in Polish prison. Uh, he is redeemed by the Bolsheviks from the prison, but when he's in prison, he writes his first book. And his first book ever written is the book of the Ukrainian verse, mm-hmm. which brings together the Ukrainian folklore. It's called um, 
Muyi Kolomeiki. Kolomeika is, is a typical genre of uh, Ukrainian Christmas folklore. So it is this kind of the uh, genre imbued with the revolutionary imagery of Ukrainian Cossacks, uh, of uh, Ukrainian uh, proletarians uh, fighting for the liberation of the people of the world. Um, so it brings together the international and the Ukrainian folklore mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in, a, in a very cohesive, coherent, and compelling way. It is really an interesting Ukrainian poetry, quite uh, um, experimental and, and quite compelling. Then, mm-hmm. uh, Kulik uh, finds himself again overseas. He is sent as the consul of the Ukrainian trade, trade mission to Montreal. Mm-hmm. Now, if you are a Soviet bureaucrat in the West, so far in the West, in Canada, what do you do? Well, you can do many things, right? You can be a spy, you can be, uh, you can enjoy life, uh, uh, you can, uh, talk to, um, uh, to the Canadians about the importance of the, uh, Ukrainian revivalism and Ukrainian communism. Kulik does not do that. Kulik is much more interested in educating the Ukrainian diaspora. He goes to Halifax. He goes to uh, Ottawa, he goes to uh, Winnipeg, he goes to uh, Alberta, he goes to all different places to give lectures about Ukraine. He um, establishes uh, links with the local Ukrainian choir. Uh, He helps put on stage Ukrainian plays. Um, He writes uh, about Ukraine to local socialist Ukrainian uh, newspapers, uh, uh, most importantly to the newspaper Robitnichi Visti, Ukrainsky Robitnichi Visti, Ukrainian Labor News. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in Winnipeg, and I gave a lecture about Kulik uh, to about 45, 50 uh, unrepentant Marxists who came to get... <laughs> I wondered, where they, to, I wondered where they all had gone. I guess uh, well, it's, it's a very interesting world. Um, uh, and, and I gave this lecture in the Ukrainian labor temple yeah. built in 1921, exactly in the temple where Kulik gave his lecture wow. in 1925. That's amazing. Okay? Now, why Kulik um, is doing that? Because he's absolutely confident that if there is any kind of liberation that comes to the world, it will come from Ukraine and through Ukraine. If there is um, any kind of uh, um, the revolution in the world, it can be only the international revolution centered in Ukraine. Uh, let me give you some sense of what he's writing um, after he um, uh, spends uh, almost two years in Canada. Um, hey, my fertile Alberta. Mahno will come for you, whatever you do, but you will rise renewed. Hi, my British Columbia, your forests and marshes will soon learn the jokes of the Volinia guerrilla. Hi, my pedantic Halifax, the port of the future, glory and progress. You think it is simple? Wouldn't you like as it was in Odessa? And so on and so forth. And, and he finishes his, uh, his uh, l- long poem, and even you, my Yukon, will never hide under the snows, for in the nearest days you will redden as a new Donbass, and yours, Ottawa, the capital, a proud house of commons, will be ardently ruled by the old Canadian Soviet commissariat. People, people, okay. all over, people all over Canada are loving you right now. I'm telling you what. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, um, in Winnipeg, uh, I was driving uh, through the um, uh, narrow streets uh, that have uh, wooden houses built in the 1910s and 1920s by the Ukrainian emigres, mm-hmm. um, and uh, some of those uh, houses would have posters, put profit aside. Vote for communists. Wow! Yeah, those, and you're yeah. driving there, and you're thinking, "Well, <laughs> am I in? Yeah. Is this January century? Yeah, 2010. Yeah, right. But um, this is what Kulik is about, and he is um, he's a true believer. He is uh, not one of this, uh, you know, Soviet bureaucrats who are uh, using the Marxist or uh, the uh, national revivalist ideology. Uh, to move along um, and to to, uh, to have a great career. No, he's really a believer, and he is writing about his things in prose poetry. He has about seven books of, of poetry, about four books of prose narrative, uh, enormous amount of uh, excellent journalistic articles. And what is very important for him in Canada at that particular time, he discovers his uh, double. He discovers in Canada a person with who he wants to identify himself. And this discovery comes as a revelation. Um, now, um, who is this person? Uh, perhaps you know that um, for, uh, about the um, 1860s in Canada, there were two uh, rebellions uh, of the uh, uh, Métis um, Indians uh, who were trying to fight against uh, the British imperialism. Mm-hmm. Now, these rebellions were led by a person whose name was uh, Louis Riel, who could have become a priest or a lawyer, and who decided, who was, who was what, by the way, and who decided that he would join the um, uh, rebellious movement of the uh, local Indians in Manitoba. And he did exactly that. Moreover, he was elected by the Indians as the, uh, the representative and as the leader of the movement. Hmm. So you have uh, a person who comes from the majority culture and says, well, I would like to do things for the Indians. This is my anti-imperial choice. Mm-hmm. He is later arrested. Uh, and he is found guilty uh, of state treason, and he's uh, he's hanged. So oh, only later, at the beginning of the 20th century, Canadians made him into a national hero. What is important for Kulik, and I believe he knows about that, uh, Louis Riel does not call himself Louis Riel. He says, I would be Louis David Riel. Why does he need the name David? Because he says, I will be for these Indians what King David had been for the Jews in the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. I will help them create their own state. I will help build them. them a kingdom. Uh, yeah. Pardon? Build them a kingdom. Yes, exactly. So uh, Louis Riel is uh, this kind of character that uh, Ivan Kulik recognizes as his, um, uh, as, as his double. And Kulik writes extensively about uh, uh, Riel conveying the idea of uh, uh, the anti-imperial rebellion, the anti-imperial choice, the importance of helping the oppressed, uh, the persecuted, the marginalized marginalized cultures uh, uh, to find their own self and to struggle for their own 
political, cultural, social independence. Mm -hmm. So Kulik, uh, when he comes back from uh, Canada, he's trade representative for a while. He comes back and uh, since he is a a national communist, he does well uh, when national communism is uh, a la mode. But by the 1930s, it's not a la mode anymore. And he runs afoul of the... uh, of the uh, of of the Stalinist by this time apparatus. Why don't you tell that story? Um, Kulik um, is doing very well um, in the 1920s, as you mentioned, Marshall, and uh, in the early 1930s, uh, to the extent that uh, when um, in the Soviet Union they create this umbrella organizations for writers and poets, uh, which would be called later the Union of the Soviet Socialist Writers, Kulik. Um, together with uh, Ivan Mikitenko, uh, becomes uh, the head of the Ukrainian uh, Union of Writers. Uh, just think about it. The person who is born as uh, Israel Yudovich Kulik, who becomes Ivan Kulik, now is the head of the Ukrainian Union of Writers. Um, that's, that's something. It is, you know, it is the story that, that, that we can spend some time um, on um, uh, at another occasion. But, but I believe it's, 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 it's not a trivial case. Uh, Kulik um, writes his um, major poem, uh, which is called Chorna Epopeia, uh, the black epic uh, poetry. Uh, which he infuses with uh, Afro-American tunes, uh, uh, genre, um, uh, melodies. Uh, he is perhaps the first Ukrainian writer to um, uh, use the uh, rhythms and, and medical system of the Afro-American poetry and also of the um, poetry of such writers as Edgar Lee Masters and um, and certainly Walt Whitman. Um, we need also to uh, uh, think about uh, Kulik's attempts to make the world literature visible in Ukrainian. Um, he puts together uh, what became the first anthology of the American poetry in the Ukrainian language. It's a 300, maybe 400 page long uh, anthology of the American poetry from Walt Whitman to uh, the uh, 1920s, um, which Kulik put together and translated into the Ukrainian language. It was published in 1927 uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Nothing like that has been published in Ukraine uh, since then, by the way. Um, The 1930s um, is... uh, um, a very difficult time for him. Uh, he is trying to find himself in the situation where people who he was very close with, such as Skripnik, such as Khvodovy, have committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, the moment when they realized that um, the encounter of national uh, revivalism with uh, leftist communism is no more possible. Click tries to adapt uh, new values and adopt himself to these new values, he's not very successful. He's extremely influential in the 1930s. He is the head of Partvidal, uh, the uh, party uh, um, publishing house, the most important publishing house in Ukraine at the time. Um, he is uh, the head of the Union of Writers. He is widely published. Uh, but the quality of his poetry in the mid-1930s uh, cannot be compared to what he does in the 1920s. Um, uh, the NKVD comes for him um, in 1937. Uh, he is arrested, accused of uh, uh, spying um, against uh, the Soviet Ukraine. Uh, the accusation says that he wanted to um, 
bring uh, such emigre figures as Venichenko uh, to Ukraine in order to, uh, so to say, uh, turn back the course of history and uh, prevent Ukraine from becoming socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, he's shot immediately the after, uh, and his wife is also arrested and shot exactly at that time. Mm-hmm. For 20 years, his name is erased from Ukrainian literature, and only in the late 1960s, early 1970s, um, he slowly but steadily comes back. Mm-hmm. Still, his uh, three-volume collected writings that were uh, put together uh, in the early 1970s uh, are sitting in the um, archive in Ukraine collecting dust, um, and uh, he still awaits uh, for another discovery. Mm-hmm, I see. Johanan, tell me about Raisa Triankar. Raisa Triankar is um, another um, person who was um, rediscovered recently by uh, postmodern uh, and uh, feministic-minded scholars, literary critics, uh, reading public in Ukraine. Um, she wrote just two books of Ukrainian verse in the 1920s, but um, among the unusual uh, men that I'm discussing in the book, she's a very, very unusual woman. Um, also born in Uman to a Russian and Yiddish-speaking family, um, also uh, w- w- grew up as a person who rejected her uh, Judaic beliefs um, and uh, the shtetl-esque environment, um, oh, fell in love with a number of Ukrainian poets and decided that she will emancipate her colonized uh, Jewish self uh, through her erotic encounters with Ukrainian literati. It's a very interesting way of uh, uh, emancipating Right, so by erotic encounters, you mean that, um, to put it in plain style English, she was having sex with these people. Yes. Yes, okay, yeah, just, you know, I'm I'm from the Midwest, and we need things put very directly, yeah. Right. Uh, uh, Let me uh, me tell you that, um, uh, to say that she had sex with uh, Ukrainian uh, writers um, is... um, a statement that needs to be explained. Yes, please First, explain. Uh, she <laughs> always, she always sought her uh, sexual partners among uh, uh, precisely the Ukrainian writers and poets, and uh, and she was uh, very well known for doing that. Um, uh, to the extent that in the unpublished memoirs uh, by um, um, a, a major Ukrainian writer of that time, Yuri Smolich. Um, uh, she is mentioned as uh, having tempted uh, dozens of great Ukrainian writers. So probably uh, anybody who was um, uh, something um, on the Ukrainian literary horizon uh, was tempted by Rolisa Troyanka. So was she and, a was she was she a uh, what we call a groupie? You know what a groupie? Uh, no, no, no. Okay. no. Uh, <laughs> she had she had short term. Um, uh, erotic encounters uh, uh, with uh, with many different people, not at the same time, uh, but um, uh, she was uh, really uh, very much interested in tempting uh, Ukrainian writers. Yeah, I didn't mean uh, to. She but also. I was going to say I didn't she, mean to, to to just. To, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, for those listening closely, I didn't mean to uh, insult Raisa Trayankar or women in general by saying that she might be a groupie. So, no no emails, please. I'm sorry. I didn't mean anything by that. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> let me uh, let me explain uh, the other side of this encounter. Uh, she grew up 
in um, a, a Jewish environment. Her father uh, was um, a scholar of Talmud in Uman, um, uh, very well known in, in the community. And um, the um, restrictions of traditional Judaism uh, was something that Reza Triankar could not stand. And she rebelled. Her rebellion uh, could have been expressed in different ways. But her rebellion uh, manifested itself precisely in this, in, in the uh, breaking of uh, the erotic taboos, uh, sexual taboos. Uh, she started as, um, um, as a 14-year-old lover mm. of, uh, uh, of a person who brought a vagabond circus to Uman. Mm. Um, he was um, a tamer of tigers, and uh, he was her first uh, erotic partner. And Raisa ran away from uh, her parents to this uh, 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 tamer of tigers. And she spent time uh, working with tigers in the circus. So she was really a person of uh, enormous courage. Uh, uh, and, yes, uh, I should say. Um, and and uh, we know that she was uh, uh, featured uh, on the posters uh, that were issued by this uh, vagabond circus. Mm-hmm. So tell, tell, us a little and, about her, tell us a little bit about her writing. Uh, right. Um, when she um, uh, moved from uh, from Uman to Kharkiv, uh, she enrolled in a local uh, teachers training institute and started to get published. Uh, she was very close with um, a number of avant-garde groups. Uh, there was such a group in Kharkiv, a Ukrainian avant-garde group called Avant-Garde, and uh, her books uh, were. Um, shaped as avant-garde Ukrainian poetry featuring three major themes. One theme makes you a very unusual character in the Ukrainian uh, literary milieu at the time. She depicted the shtetl. Mm-hmm. The shtetl that she abandoned, uh, that she had abandoned, the shtetl uh, uh, which uh, was uh, about traditional Jewish life, um, her uh, imposing parents, um, Judaic tradition, um, uh, Yarmulkes, uh, uh, the Talmud, uh, the, the, the Torah learning, and um, the uh, uh, kosher stuff that they had at home all the time. Instead of saying, you know, I'm a member of the Young Communist League and I deny this past, she says, despite the fact that I'm the member of the Young Communist League, I love this past. <laughs> and this is a very unusual something for a, uh, a 20-year-old um, uh, avant-garde poet. She really infused her poetry, her Ukrainian lyric poetry, with the images of her parents, with the images of the decaying moribund Godforsaken shtetl, and she loves it. She loves this video. She shows that it, it is uh, it is it is a very warm um, um, household where people treat you nicely, where you uh, still feel empathy uh, toward you, whoever you are. Um, so she tells the story of her uh, visits to uh, her family where she has uh, an ongoing debate with her father about the future of, uh, of the Jews, about the future of the Ukrainians. And her father says, you know, Zion, Palestine, um, religious values. And she says, um, uh, urban milieu, uh, the construction of communism, Ukraine. <laughs> and this debate is very interestingly um, 
interwoven into a poetic dialogue, which you see in her poetry. So the shtetl is one of her themes. Another uh, theme is quite obvious, since she is part of the uh, futuristic circle. Um, she describes the growing um, urban, um, uh, the growing urban, how to put it better, uh, society uh, in this uh, new industrial cities in eastern Ukraine. First and foremost, Kharkiv. Kharkiv uh, really was um, a kind of a New York uh, um, of the 1920s with uh, um, uh, skyscrapers, with, with uh, new buildings of uh, um, um, concrete and, and, and glass, uh, the um, avant-garde kind of architecture, uh, was very visible in Kharkiv at that time. So um, she describes um, the growth of uh, Ukrainian industrial cities. The third theme uh, is uh, um, really groundbreaking. I believe Troyankar is the first to introduce um, a very warm eroticism into the Ukrainian poetry. Hmm. So she describes her encounters, hmm. her sex with Ukrainian poets <laughs> in her poetry. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 it's funny, but it's also very interesting that for her to become emancipated, to feel herself freed, uh, to feel herself uh, part of the uh, greater humanity um, is... Uh, um, I would say, I'm looking for a word, uh, is something that requires this encounter with a Ukrainian poet. Mm -hmm. And by encounter, I mean having sex. Mm -hmm. So you have Ukrainian poet, you have Risa Kuryanka, and she emancipates her body uh, through this encounter, mm -hmm. and, and she also emancipates her poetic ego. So she can become a poet only through uh, having sex with a Ukrainian poet. <laughs> and her having sex with a Ukrainian poet makes her into a free human being, hmm. able to do whatever she wants, able to express herself in wonderful Ukrainian lyrics. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, how unusual it is, it is very unusual for the late 1920s. Mm -hmm. um, uh, she um, writes this two, she, she publishes this two volumes of, um, of uh, Ukrainian books. Then she um, uh, tempted another poet who happened to be uh, Leningrad-based and not Kiev or Kharkiv-based, and she travels with him to Leningrad, where she spends four or five years. Uh, then he abuses her physically. Uh, there was home violence. She runs away from him. She does not want any kind of violence applied to her. So she runs away from him, and he finds herself in Murmansk. Mm -hmm. And she spends the last 10 years of her life, she, she, she died in 1945, in Murmansk mm -hmm. as a uh, war journalist. Mm -hmm. And then in Murmansk, there is another part of the story, which is not a Ukrainian part of her story, because she becomes a Russian-language journalist, and she publishes a book of um, Russian verse, which is, you know, five levels lower than her Ukrainian verse. Mm -hmm. But people who knew her in Murmansk were fascinated by her courage. She would go to the front lines um, of the um, of the um, uh, uh, North Polar uh, Division of the Soviet troops, and she would recite um, Alexander Bloch, Nikolai Gumilov, Anna Akhmatova, um, Maxim Rilsky, and other Russian and Ukrainian poets to the soldiers 
sitting in the trenches, in the front line, mm-hmm. under the German fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's brave. And uh, people found it fascinating. We have memoirs uh, of Raisa Troyanker uh, uh, behaving courageously at that particular time, and, 19, and the 1940s. How, and how is she remembered today, very briefly? Um, <clears throat> um, a number of uh, female uh, Ukrainian literary critics uncovered her, published a number of her poems, realized they are dealing with an unusual case, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, there were afterward uh, a number of scholars who became interested in her, including you know uh, very solid literary scholars in the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences who published articles about her. And just to tell you, last year was 100th anniversary um, of her birthday. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Poltava, uh, uh, the local um, uh, literary historian uh, published a, a book of uh, Triankar's poetry and um, uh, Russian and Ukrainian uh, poetry uh, with his 60-page uh, long uh, preface. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, you cannot get the book anywhere in Ukraine because it was sold like in, in two weeks. I see. Okay, um, so let's move on very quickly to uh, Leonid Pirvamaisky, that, and that would be for those of you who don't uh, know Russian um, or Ukrainian, I suppose. That's a Leonid the 1st of May, which probably uh, wasn't right. his given name. <laughs> right. Um, uh, he was born uh, um, Ilya Shlomovich uh, Hurevich. Um, again, we are dealing with a case where a person is born um, uh, to a Russian and Yiddish-speaking family, uh, but decided to integrate the Ukrainian culture and, Ukra- and, and become um, a Ukrainian uh, poet and writer. Um, of the five um, writers and poets that I'm discussing in the book, uh, Leonid Pervomaisky, uh really uh, made it to the pantheon of uh, the 20th century <clears throat> Ukrainian literati. Uh, he is... Uh, Oh, very much revered. Uh, there are streets uh, named after his name. There are, uh, you know, steamships n- named after him. Um, there are uh, schools and uh, libraries named after him. So he is he's very well known. Um, um, his um, uh, entire uh, seven-volume collect- uh, collection of writings uh, was published three or four times over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. So this is not an unknown figure. But the unusual thing about Leonid Pervomaisky is that in the late 1920s, early 1930s, when he started his career, um, he wanted to become a Ukrainian Isaac Babel. Mm-hmm. And he did not start as a poet. He wrote uh, two or three collections of uh, uh, prose narrative. At least uh, one of them is, is a novel, another is a collection of stories, and they are about uh, a Ukrainian-Jewish encounter. They're about uh, Ukrainians and Jews in the shtetls, um, in the small towns of Ukraine, um, before the uh, uh, socialist revolution of 1917 and after that. Uh, he describes the shtetl, he describes the regeneration of Jews who uh, were living in this uh, moribund, uh, godforsaken towns, and now uh, in the 1920s are emerging as robust uh, Ukrainian peasants of Jewish origin. Mm -hmm. Um, He discusses the transformation of the East European Jews, uh, looking at them against the backdrop of Ukrainization, and he makes Jews into Ukrainians Mm -hmm. in his his Mm -hmm. prose narrative. Mm -hmm. So what is important in um, the uh, 1930s 
uh, he was still publishing his uh, plays, very, very popular, um, uh, about uh, Jews becoming agricultural dwellers in Ukraine, about the establishment of agricultural colonies in the southern Ukraine, um, about this uh, Jewish-Ukrainian uh, rapprochement. But later he had to abandon this theme once and for all. And uh, the uh, uh, and when in in the 1960s he wanted to republish some of his stories that had that, that had appeared in the 1920s, he uh, literally uh, transformed them uh, into something different, erasing all the uh, uh, significant references to Jewish themes. Why did he do Just, that? Because he wanted to save his prose narrative for republication. He mm -hmm. wanted these things to be republished. But the censorship did not allow him to have this uh, um, Ukrainian-Jewish narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, so he really rewrote many of his uh, previous stuff to uh, save it for the publication. Mm -hmm. What I did in the book, I recovered his um, uh, original publications of 1926, 1929, 1932, um, and uh, through them, um, I reconstructed what Kravomaisky was at that particular time, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not how he uh, wanted to present himself and mm -hmm. present his past in the 1960s. So the Kravomaisky that we know uh, today, or that most Russians would know, it is the... Um I guess, uh, sanitized or communized or Stalinized. Yes, uh, Moisky. So is it, are his um, original publications, the original versions, going to be published? Are you publishing them? Or should we, uh, should we tattoo them on my back? Or what, what should, how do we get them out? <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly there are things that should be republished. But, you know, um, um, the um, grandson of Pervomaisky, who, um, who lives now somewhere uh, near Vienna, um, uh, is in control of the entire archive of Pervomaisky, and he uh, publishes um, the uh, original stuff of Pervomaisky every two, three years. Mm -hmm. So there is somebody who is uh, you know, uh, taking care of, uh, of the reintroducing Pervomaisky to us. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, in 2004, they published... Um, he published um, a very interesting book of satires, uh, Peromaisky satires, um, against uh, Ukrainian anti-Semites, against uh, the official communist writers and poets, um, uh, and, and they are mind-blowing. You, mm -hmm. you read this satire and you cannot imagine that uh, something like that could have been written in, let's say, 1957. Mm -hmm. Very sharp, mm -hmm. excellent uh, uh, Heine-esque uh, poetry mm -hmm. uh, with, um, uh, with 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 the dialogue between uh, Pervomaisky's alter ego and uh, and his interlocutor, who seems to be um, uh, one of the uh, major anti-Semitic-minded uh, official Ukrainian poets mm -hmm. at the time. And you have 25 pages of poetry of their dialogue, mm -hmm. and they debate. Um, who uh, of them really represents Ukraine? Mm -hmm. This, uh, you know, staunch anti-Semite and, and uh, um, ironclad Bolshevik, or Pervomaisky uh, with his problematic origin and and his dual identity. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, we we are uh, running reasonably short on time, so I want to move on very quickly to talk about um, <clears throat> a fellow who's still alive, I guess, uh, Moise Fishbrain. Is he still alive? Is that right? Yeah, he's he's still there. Um, he um, traveled a lot. 
Moisei Tishbein um, is still alive. He is uh, now in Kyiv. Um, he was uh, born in Chernivtsi, in uh, Bukovina, uh, the town that remembered uh, the uh, Austro-Hungarian um, uh, Empire as, uh, as the utopian times, and that saw itself uh, in the 1950s as, as, the, as the vestige of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, uh, Fishbein um, uh, studied in Novosibirsk. He could not get to any uh, higher educational establishment in, in Ukraine. Uh, then he was uh, um, found uh, by uh, high-ranking Ukrainian poets, invited to Kiev, spent time in Kiev, integrated uh, himself into the milieu of Ukrainian uh, writers and poets who called themselves um, uh, the poets and writers of the 60s. Uh, so this liberal democratic um, mm -hmm. milieu um, published his first book of poetry, fascinating book of poetry, which shows that he really started as perhaps the only one um, poet in Ukraine with uh, straightforward metaphysic, metaphysical um, concerns. Uh, the person who did not discuss, you know, the construction of, of the new society or, the, or socialism or, you know, the exploration of cosmos, uh, but rather who discusses uh, life and death, black and white, the Holocaust, mm -hmm. the victims, the victimization of culture, the language as, as a victim of, um, of politics and other things. Uh, he was made uh, uh, emigrate from Ukraine. He spent some time in Israel, and he became um, um, uh, a uh, how to say it. Um, he, he became a commentator at uh, Radio Liberty of mm -hmm. Europe in Munich. <clears throat> and uh, after the uh, uh, events of 1991, when Ukraine uh, finally became an independent country, he uh, moved back to Ukraine. Uh, what is interesting, when he was <coughs> uh, in the Russian army, um, uh, somewhere near Vladivostok, uh, he um, realized that he is banished from Ukraine, and Ukraine is his um, fatherland, and Ukraine is the center of his uh, universe. Mm -hmm. That is to say, when he was in Israel, he also saw himself as banished. From so Israel, yeah. for him, for him, and by the way, he speaks Hebrew. He mm -hmm. knows Yiddish. He is uh, he is a person who lights candles over Hanukkah and uh, congratulates you with Passover. So he's really vested. He has vested interest in in in, in uh, his Judaic self. But for him to be in Germany or to be in Israel or to be in in, in the Far East uh, means to be in diaspora. Mm -hmm. When he goes to Ukraine, he goes back. And and um, um, he is um, one of these rare poets who is constantly pondering the role of the language, and he sees himself as the redeemer of the Ukrainian language. Um, uh, he turns to the Ukrainian language and says, so he turns to Ukraine language and says, turn to me my language. Uh, he uses a, a feminine diminutive when he turns to Ukrainian language. You are uh, untouched, uh, raped, and sacred. Um, and he sees himself as a redeemer of this language. He redeems the Ukrainian language from the imposed Russification, from the assimilation, from the loss of, um, 
of its uh, genuine, what he says, genuine Ukrainian identity, and he returns this identity to the language. Uh, this messianic striving of Tishbein makes him a very interesting figure on the Ukrainian horizon. Nobody uh, has ever dared to uh, say, you know, I am the redeemer of the Ukrainian language. Mm -hmm. uh, but Tishbein does exactly that. I, I want to, um, again, we're, we're kind of running out of time, but I want to take the last few minutes to talk about a, a more couple of more general issues that I noticed in reading the book and listening to you. Uh, and they're all relatively contemporary and not historical or even poetic, I suppose. But one of the things that uh, you do note in reading the book is that at least four of the people that you deal with um, in becoming Ukrainian literati have to give up or truncate their Jewish identities. And I'm thinking of... Um, uh, Kunerenko, uh, Kulik, Trejankar, and Pirvamaisky, they all become something that isn't Jewish. Uh, is it possible today to be a Ukrainian nationalist or Ukrainian uh, writer and actually be an observant Jew in the kind of way that, uh, and Americans don't have any problem with this, obviously, but I, I don't know, it probably happens in Western Europe as well. What is the sort of status of, um, I guess, uh, it's really hard to know what to say here. Uh, Jewish literati in Ukraine writing in Ukrainian. Okay, uh, Marshall, let me uh, please correct you. I do think that these people um, who you mentioned, uh, they had to um, leave their uh, uh, Jewish uh, self, so to say, behind when they integrated the Ukrainian culture. However, uh, what makes them very unusual people, and I'm emphasizing this in the book, they are creating a Ukrainian Jewish narrative. Mm -hmm. Is either prose narrative or or poetry. Uh, they all use Jewish imagery in Ukrainian poetry. They are discussing uh, how to reconcile these two selves, mm -hmm. and the reconciliation or non-reconciliation becomes a, a drama and trauma that they have to grapple with um, in their uh, literary endeavors. Mm -hmm. um, however, let me get back to the second half of your question. What are you saying? Um, uh, when you're asking uh, whether it is possible uh, to be a, an observant Jew or relatively traditional Jew and still uh, supportive of uh, Ukrainian nationalism, I say yes, absolutely yes. And this uh, particular encounter of, let's say, somebody's uh, traditional Judaic self and, and uh, Ukrainian national strivings became possible, you would be uh, surprised to hear where and how. Mm -hmm. It became possible uh, due to the encounter of the Zionists and Ukrainian nationalists arrested for their uh, human rights activities mm -hmm. in the times of Brezhnev, sentenced to different terms, usually seven, eight years of the correction colony, and sent to the correction colonies where they found themselves um, engaged in, in a very intensive dialogue. I mean, uh, particularly Ukrainians, uh, con uh, conscious Ukrainians, national-minded Ukrainians, and Jews. Um, and there are uh, very important writings. Uh, there is uh, an entire discourse created by their dialogue uh, and shaped by their dialogue, which is about Ukrainians and Jews discovering themselves as people of uh, different creeds, of different backgrounds, with uh, very different vectors in life. Uh, but they are constantly learning from one another uh, how to create their own national um, historical narrative, Jews from Ukrainians and Ukrainians from Jews. Mm -hmm. Because of this background, which, which became uh, quite well-known in the uh, 1990s in Ukraine, um, it is not impossible uh, to see uh, 
uh, Jews aware of their Jewishness and of the uh, of their you know either Israeli or uh, traditional Judaic uh, values. Uh, uh, finding uh, Ukrainian values and Ukrainian national strivings uh, quite commendable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, what what is this? Uh, this is a kind of a, more, a broader question. What is it? How many uh, are uh, how many Jews are there in Ukraine today? I don't even know. There was a massive outflow of Jews from the uh, from from the Russian Federation. Uh, is that true in Ukraine as well? Uh, well, uh, look, um, it is difficult to um, uh, give precise uh, data. Uh, I would say uh, between uh, 350 and 450,000 Jews uh, there are in Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. And is this uh, th- this tradition of, I guess I'd call it Jewish writing in Ukrainian, is it identified as such and taught in universities and schools? Uh, uh, I know that in the case of someone like Piotr Maisky or Fishbein, uh, you know, these are important poets, but the more obscure, if I can use that word, poets, are they recognized as well? Uh, may I be self-praising? Yes, you may. <laughs> okay. Uh, I usually do that for you, but you go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, Marshall, I think um, uh, I am discovering uh, this tradition, qua tradition. There were figures recognized as uh, important Ukrainian Jewish figures. For instance, uh, let me mention um, Yeremia Eisenstock, who is uh, perhaps uh, – the most well-known scholar of Tarashevchenko of the first half of the 20th century. Um, uh, there were other people recognized as important uh, Jewish contributors to Ukrainian culture. For instance, if you go to Kiev and uh, you uh, you are on the subway, you will hear the this uh, famous song, um, How Can I Not Love You, My Kiev? This song was written by um, a Ukrainian composer, Ihor Shamo, who is Jewish. Mm-hmm. So people would recognize that there are important Jews who contributed to the Ukrainian culture. Mm-hmm. But nobody was ever talking about, uh, nobody has ever been talking about the tradition, about the discourse, about the uh, something that we can trace down from the 1880s till the 1990s and, and, and see these people as being in contact with one another either genetically or genealogically or through the prism of cultural genealogy. Mm-hmm. So they are aware of one another. Mm-hmm. Just to give you one uh, one example, Kulik found Tervomaisky and uh, gave, gave him a push at the beginning of his literary career. Uh, Tervomaisky, when he was uh, already uh, uh, a, a, a renowned poet, uh, welcomed Fishbane mm-hmm. and blessed him. Mm-hmm. So you do have this kind of of an encounter of people of different generations who see themselves as continuing one and the same line. I don't care if we are if we have you know ten people in this um, tradition, but they are important. Mm-hmm. Now, why I'm ta- why I'm telling you this story? Um, it's a preface to a very important to a very simple point. No, this tradition, qua tradition, is not taught because I have just discovered it. My book is being translated. <laughs> Um, okay, um, I'm not asking for for Pulitzer Prize, Marshall. Yeah, so you're tra- um, the book's being translated. Uh, my book is being translated um, into Ukrainian right now. Um, um, uh, Harvard University and and Kritika Publishers will publish the book probably at the end of this year, beginning of the next year, and um, we'll live happily ever after. We'll see what will be the the response of of uh, the Ukrainian. Um, uh, critics. Uh, to well, I'm sure it'll be very positive. I can already, I can already, um, I, I can predict that. I'm, I'm happy to predict that. Now, let me. Um, we've taken up a huge amount of your time, and I really want to thank you. It's always enjoyable to talk to you. Let me ask our traditional final question on this 100th 
episode of New Books in History, and that is, uh, Johan, and what are you working on now? Uh, Marshall, I just um, uh, sent the proofs uh, to Yale University Press. Uh, Yale is publishing uh, my new book, which is called Lenin's Jewish Question. Um, it's about uh, how uh, Lenin treated uh, uh, the Bolsheviks of Jewish descent, and it's about um, uh, Lenin's uh, maternal great-grandfather, uh, whose name was Moshka Blank, and who was born uh, Jewish um, in uh, the uh, small shtetl uh, called Staro Konstantinov um, in the Pale of Settlement. Wow. Um, uh, once I see this book um, um, published, uh, I will get to uh, my new book project, uh, which is uh, entitled, um, tentatively entitled, Shtetl as it was, uh, or Shtetl as it really was, where I'm trying to recover the material culture of the late 18th, early 19th century um, uh, Jewish uh, 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 market town uh, in the Pale of Settlement. Well, that's terrific, and um, I look forward to talking to you about uh, the Lenin book and the book about the shtetl. I really do, and I want to thank you very much for being on the show. I, uh, as I said, I always enjoy talking to you, and I really appreciate it. Marshall, uh, honored, and I'm pleased. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Johannin Petrovsky-Stern about his new book, The Anti-Imperial Choice, The Making of the Ukrainian Jew. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.